3: Twitter at Proft and at Dan Prof Show. In her uh, opening day of her confirmation hearing yesterday, Amy Coney Barrett had the chance to make an opening statement. It was uh, incredible that she would have the poise to make it after having to listen to five hours of mostly nonsensical pontificating from the likes of Sheldon Whitehouse, who I'm sure she ran into a lot of people like that in law school because Whitehouse is an attorney, the insufferable sort of attorney that is the way that attorneys are caricatured. It's because of people like Sheldon Whitehouse. She did have uh, the opportunity to say this and tried to add a little levity to the proceeding.
4: And I might bring a few new perspectives to the bench. As the president noted when he announced my nomination, I would be the first mother of school-aged children to serve on the court. And I know that it would make Senators Young and Braun happy to know that I would be the first justice to join the court from the Seventh Circuit in 45 years. I would be the only sitting justice who didn't attend school at Harvard or Yale, but I am confident that Notre Dame could hold its own, and maybe I could even teach them a thing
5: or two about football.
3: If we wanted to teach the justice something about football, we'd get somebody who graduated from Clemson or Alabama law school. But uh, here's the thing. In fact, as Bill McGurn writes in The Wall Street Journal, what really frightens the Ivy League types, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, notwithstanding, is that there is a case before the court, case coming before the court at some point with respect to race-based admissions to colleges. And since the Ivy Leagues have been the most egregious offenders on the topic, for example, the Harvard case, where they were artificially lowering the personality scores of Asian American students so as to reduce the number of Asian American students they let in, In favor of other minority groups for whom they sought greater representation. That is particularly noxious. And I think Amy Coney Barrett realizes it. And I think the Ivy League schools like Harvard and Princeton and Yale realize that she realizes it. For more on all things ACB confirmation related, we're pleased to be joined again by Father Robert Sirico, the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. Father Sirico, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
6: Thank you. I wanted to come in and say something about being from USC. I. Pray the rosary against Notre Dame when they play. <laughs> there, you, they play. there you go. And there. as you see, sometimes Our Lady listens.
3: Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, your uh, impressions of uh, of the first day and the the attack that uh, the Democrat senators took, not to go after the uh, impeccably credentialed ACB directly, but rather to try to turn the confirmation hearing into one about process and uh, the future
6: of Obamacare. Well, it was positively penitential to see Ms. Barrett having to sit there through all of that. By the way, you're very right about Senator Whitehouse, because I had to testify before a committee that he was on. And he just boviated for whatever the amount of time he had was, I think it was five or ten minutes, and then just walked out. He wasn't interested at all in engaging in the ideas. It is intriguing to me, and I think a tacit admission of the failure of their previous tactics, but they're not going after her religion this time. I think Diane Feinstein in particular really made a dreadful mistake the last time, the famous line, the dogma living loudly inside of her. And they didn't touch that.
3: They, they also don't need to go after her faith. They don't need to go after and and generate conspiracy theories about the adoptions. Because they have the D.C. press corps to do that. They have well, so-called intellectuals like Ibram Kendi calling her a white colonizer. So they don't, they don't need to do it because they have allies who will do it for
6: them. It's very unfortunate that there is a visceral resistance to white families adopting African-American or, in this case, Haitian children. And it's very unfortunate because it leaves all these children then without homes. There just aren't enough African-American homes to adopt, only African-American children. But I happen to be the uncle of two African-American kids. I mean, they're as Italian as they are African-American, but there's the reality of it. hmm
3: it might be interesting if uh, Republicans bring up some of the previous uh, questioning from Democrats of Amy Coney Barrett and other judges like Brian Buescher, uh with respect to Kamala Harris specifically, because it wasn't just DiFi. It was also Dick Durbin asking her if she considers herself an Orthodox Catholic. It was Brian Busher nominated for federal district court judge where Harris made her famous foray into uh, the Knights of Columbus, and asked uh, essentially the nominee if he had ever in any way assisted with or contributed to advocacy against women's reproductive rights because he was pro-life. She also asked if he opposed marriage equality because that's the way to get around essentially having a religious test without saying this is a religious test.
6: Right. I think it's very difficult for them to bring up these issues. The problem the Senate is having, or the Democrats are having now with her, is that they have to deal with her issues. They have to deal with her on a philosophical level. And they don't like to do that, because they don't have a conversation about this. They just want to keep repeating the emotional stories of people whose lives would be threatened, if the act doesn't pass, or if it's overturned, uh, and then all of the rest of it, but none of the substance, they don't want to deal with that. That's just what she's left them with now. She has a beautiful life story. She's not a theocrat. They don't want to go there. They just have to ask her that question one time and they're going to get the answer.
3: The interesting thing that uh, the ACB nomination brings up again, and so does Joe Biden's candidacy, is the uh, idea of faith in public life. John Kennedy, you know, the first Catholic president, and this is what uh, spawned generations of, uh, of Catholics who were culturally Democrat because John F. Kennedy was Democrat. And, of course, they forget that John F. Kennedy essentially renounced any claim that his Catholic faith may have any impact on his governing to uh, try to allay fears in advance of that 1960 election. And it seems like we're, we're still in that place, actually perhaps more aggressively hostile to Catholicism, Christianity today, where you're supposed to renounce that your faith has any influence on the decisions you would make as an elected official. And, and I wonder how you see that, how I, I don't yeah. see
6: it that way at all. Yeah. I, I think they they like to say that when you get a Republican, they're going to say that to her. But when it comes to Biden speaking about his faith or even Kamala Harris speaking about, she says, I'm, I'm a, I'm a believer. And, and yet, and they would say, my Catholic faith, my social justice tradition affects the way I govern, affects the way I uh, view the law. They, they would say that, right? I mean, did, did, did religion not affect Martin Luther King? <laughs> you know, right. did, did religion not affect, you know, it's the question of what the political agenda is and whether religious inspiration inspires that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, is another uh, example whose Jewish faith uh, inspired her view of jurisprudence
3: right but with respect to you know joe biden has said this just recently about you know how his catholic faith you know essentially informs his social justice agenda yeah. and this is how you can get away with uh, at the one hand saying oh, of course i'm catholic but you know i don't take it so seriously i'm really focused on this secular political agenda that That's has very right. little to do with the faith
6: You know, I said about John Kennedy, and I really need to go to confession after I'm done saying this again now, but it is true that his religious faith never affected his public life, and it didn't affect his private life very much either, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's very sad when one can't just hold on to the faith, make the distinction between, you know authority and power, that is authority coming from God, but power in the hands of the state, God and Caesar to separate the powers and to affirm the American Constitution. Uh, And if you're Jewish or Hindu or Muslim or even Roman Catholic, (laughs) um, you should be able to do that.
3: Um, I wanted to get to your take on uh, Joe Biden's resistance to answering the question about whether or not he would support changing the number of Supreme Court justices, increasing to so-called pack the court. And uh, what, what uh, packing the court, which uh, Chuck Schumer is less demure about his support for doing, uh, what, what that would mean, generally speaking, for our individual rights and maybe specifically for religious liberty?
6: Well, I think on the surface, it's, it's a very obvious Egregious move. It's a desperate move on their part. And we know what the agenda is because they articulate it repeatedly. It would become uh, every bit as theocratic as what they're accusing their opponents of being. It's just that the theocracy that they're going to build is a secular theocracy. Uh, And I think it would threaten religious liberty as we know it that is, the, the right to really believe in one's faith and practice it and build institutions that propose that. And then, of course, the whole economic left-wing agenda that would result from this. Uh, I think, you know, I don't think that um, Roosevelt is viewed with great um, admiration for his attempt to pack the court historically. So I think this... If that's going to happen, that's uh, one more reason to get out and
3: vote. He is Father Robert Sirico, President and Co-Founder of the Acton Institute. Uh, again, the motto of the Acton Institute, my favorite of anything, connecting good intentions to sound economics. Love it. Father Sirico, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you
7: very much. I don't
0: give a damn. I'm a man. Come round.
8: No, no, nothing, can break. No, nothing can break me down. I'm
0: a man. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. Building off our conversation with Father Robert Sirico from the Acton Institute, I just wanted to get to a couple other aspects of what uh, Democrat Socialists did on day one, setting up what they'll do on days two and three with the Q&A, setting up what they'll do on day four on Thursday with the outside witnesses, both pro and anti-ACB, before they uh, do a delay tactic for the week that they're allotted. And then it's voted out. Of, her nomination is voted out of committee and sent over to Mitch McConnell to schedule a vote on October 22nd. So that's the whole process. But what they laid out in their five hours of bloviations, led by attorneys like Sheldon Whitehouse, who I'm sure Amy Coney Barrett has run across many times in her life. It was interesting. Somebody on Facebook said, I hope she'll be fine yesterday after round one, as it were, and her opening statement. I I hope she'll be fine. She looks like a deer in the headlights. And uh, my reaction was Amy Coney Barrett has spent her life doing serious, important things. She probably hasn't paid attention to These politicians and their pro forma demagoguing of issues. And so when you're first put before a, a Senate committee, you're struck by just how dopey so many of them are. And so you can understand why she might be taken aback given the intellect she's normally surrounded by, including her students, as compared to some of these senators. I mean, good. Gravy. In addition, and and not to mention some that are spry is the uh, antithesis of what uh, so many of these octogenarian senators bring to the table, in addition to, uh, again, they're just particular political prosecutions. So Kamala Harris, by uh, video, I thought offered a nice summary of what all the Democrat socialist senators offered. And of course, all the other Democrat socialist senators offered a nice summary of what Kamala Harris offered because it was very uh, color by numbers. The The hearing is illegitimate. Shouldn't be happening. Uh, you're jamming through a nominee while people are voting. This is all about Obamacare and the Obamacare case before the court next term. And, um we're not going to address anything related to Amy Coney Barrett because she is impeccably credentialed. So instead, we're going to make this about health care because we think that's why we won the midterms in 2018. And this is what we can do in this process to try and advance the Harris Biden tickets flag. That's basically a summary of what happened. Let me give you an example. Kamala Harris right out of the gate. This
1: hearing should have been postponed. The decision to hold this hearing now is reckless and places facilities workers, janitorial staff, and congressional aides and
9: Capitol Police at risk.
3: It's illegitimate because there shouldn't be a nominee. It's also reckless. Let's get a little COVID hysteria in there as well as a kicker. Jamming through the nominee while people are voting.
4: Yet the Senate majority is rushing this process and jamming President Trump's nominee through the Senate while people are actually voting.
3: So what? 9 million people have voted out of 130 million that are going to vote. 9 million, 50 million, all 130 million. So what? What does that have to do with anything? People have voted. They voted in 2016 for this president. He has a four-year term. They voted in 2018 for the senators that were up for re-election. They have six-year terms. They voted for senators in years past that are still serving out their six-year terms. What's the problem here? This idea people are voting so it's illegitimate, this is not a direct democracy. You would think an officer of the court, a former state attorney general, would know that. Of course she does. It's intentional deceit, not a direct democracy. We don't have plebiscites on Supreme Court nominees. We have a representative republic. We elect officials to the Senate. They have six year terms. We elect a president. He has a four year term. And you get to fulfill the entire six year term or four year term, as the case may be. So I mean, just setting aside that little bit of sophistry. Uh, amid all the other histrionics. But, you know, please push back on that if you hear such nonsense in your circles of influence. Now, as to the Obamacare sophistry.
1: They are trying to get a justice onto the court in time to ensure they can strip away the protections of the Affordable Care Act. And if they succeed, it will result in millions of people losing access to health care at the worst
10: possible time.
3: And so you got the two layers of lies there. Number one, as a, all of the anecdotes they shared of people with pre-existing conditions who would allegedly lose their health insurance coverage if this case uh, would result in the overturning of Obama uh, of Obamacare in toto as Ted Cruz pointed out 100% of the United States Senate support coverage of pre-existing conditions so that's a lie and by the way this discussion as Cruz and Sass and others pointed out belongs in a policy discussion for senators to make Policy, healthcare policy. This has nothing to do with Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, but okay. Oh, and to the extent you say, well, there's a case before the court next term. Yes, there is. And she's not going to prejudge a case any more than any other Supreme Court justice or Supreme Court justice nominee would. So it is, um, as I said, histrionics a little more. By the way, uh, it's more likely than not that uh, Obamacare. is not struck down that this is not a particularly good case that Republican attorneys general led by Texas's Ken Paxton decided to uh, push to the court. Just a quick refresher here, right in 2012, Roberts joins the four leftists on the court, upholds the individual mandate, declares it a tax. They had a lawful choice to pay a tax or buy insurance. That was the argument. Okay. Well, in 2017, GOP Congress zeroed out the mandate penalty, individual mandate telling making the tax effectively zero. If the tax is zero, argues Republican attorneys general like Texas's Ken Paxton, then the mandate becomes un- an unconstitutional command under the Commerce Clause and the entire law must fall because other provisions are inextricably linked to the tax that has now been zeroed out. And they pointed to the dissent by four justices in the 2012 Obama case that said the mandate could not be severed from the rest of the law. However, you have to look to legislative intent as part of your analysis. Republican Congress in 2017 effectively severed that mandate that the court said couldn't be severed at the time, but uh, that was in its 2012 constitution, meaning organization. Congress amended effectively severing the mandate by surgically eliminating the penalty in 2017. GOP senators at the time vowing they were not changing anything in the uh, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, except that one thing, the penalty, and that nothing in the tax reform, quote, implicates Obamacare policies like coverage for preexisting conditions. So it's um, not a gotcha game against Congress, as Brett Kavanaugh wrote in a ruling this July that severed a provision from a law restricting robocalls where litigants can write a discrete constitutional flaw in a statute to take down the whole otherwise constitutional statute. He was joined in that opinion on severance by both Roberts and Alito. So that's not exactly on point, but on the issue of severability, it is instructive if you're trying to read tea leaves. And the point here to say is the Democrat socialists are saying this is a fait accompli, this case before the court. And it's anything but because of the nuances of how the statute was written uh, initially, what the legislative intent was behind zeroing out the uh, individual mandate penalty in 2017 by the Republican Senate. And so for an originalist like Amy Coney Barrett, uh, I I don't know. Uh, You could certainly make out a case where she would uphold it based on the particular facts in this case with respect to Obamacare. Maybe not the best Obamacare case to have been brought. Uh, So the two layers of lies from Democrat socialists against, as they try to uh, turn this into a referendum on uh, Obamacare and use this opportunity to uh, have a twofer when it comes to fear mongering. One, you're going to lose your health insurance coverage if you have a preexisting condition lie. And two, it's going to happen against the backdrop of, of a pandemic. And, you know, where do the lies begin and end uh, in terms of the COVID-19 discussion? This is Dan Cross.
0: And profshow.com.
3: Welcome back to the show. And uh, Dr. David Nabarro is the World Health Organization Special Envoy in COVID 19. Dr. David Nabarro, British doctor. Spent his career, even though he's a medical doctor, as a public health professional in uh, global government agencies. He uh, recently did an interview with a Scottish broadcaster on British television, Andrew Neal. And he was asked about um, a point that was made by Oxford epidemiologist Dr. Sunetra Gupta, a point about uh, how economies work, so Dr. Gupta, in pursuing her career as a um, a world-renowned epidemiologist, also was able to pass any kind of one course because she made the simple point that lockdown policies have unintended consequences beyond the local economy that you're hampering because economies are interconnected. You're disproportionately hurting the global economy in such a way that the poor and those emerging nations get hit the hardest, something that those who like to demagogue the issue don't want to tackle. And uh, I found uh, Dr. Nabarro's response, given that he's a WHO functionary, pleasantly shocking.
2: But we had Professor Sunetra uh, Gupta from Oxford University on, and she was implying, and I'm interested in you because you have a global mandate, a global view, was that a problem we don't think about in lockdowns is that they're very nationalistic. That if we lock down our economy, then it hits our economy. But it also means we are not buying stuff. We're not trading with weaker economies. We are not just destroying our own jobs. We're destroying the jobs of all those that, in the
11: poorer parts of the world that export to us. That seemed to me to be a reasonable point. Really important point by Professor Gupta. I want to say it again. Uh, we in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as a primary means of control of this virus. The only time we believe a lockdown is justified is to buy you time to reorganise, regroup, rebalance your resources, protect your health workers who are exhausted. But by and large, we'd rather not do it. Just look at what's happened to the tourism industry, for example, in the Caribbean or in the Pacific, because people aren't taking their holidays. Look what's happened to smallholder farmers all over the world, because their markets have got dented. Look what's happening to poverty levels. It seems that we may well have a doubling of world poverty by next year. We may well have at least a doubling of child malnutrition because children are not getting meals at school and their parents in poor families are not able to afford it. This is a terrible, ghastly global uh, catastrophe, actually. And so we really do appeal to all world leaders. Stop using lockdown as your primary control method. Develop better systems for doing it. Work together and learn from each other. Mm. But remember, lockdowns just have one consequence that you must never, ever uh, belittle, and that is making poor people an awful lot poorer. For
3: more on this, we're pleased to be joined by a colleague of uh, Professor Gupta, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor at Stanford University Medical School, physician, epidemiologist, health economist, he's passed an ECON 101 course too, and public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable populations, Dr. Jay Thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I, I mean, that, that that's a statement by Dr. Nabarro is appreciated, and I'm, I'm stunned. Uh, where is this in the debate in our country?
1: Uh, I wish it were front and center. I mean, he, what he said is 100% correct. Um, we, we have, uh, in the last, let's say, 20-some years, uh, through the functioning of the world economy, lifted a billion people out of poverty. Uh, that is... That is threatened to be reversed in in, in only a very very short amount of time. I think, as a consequence of these lockdowns that not just our country but uh, countries around the world have adopted. Uh, but our country, because of the central role we play in the world economy, has uh, I mean has a, a, a huge responsibility to maintaining that. Uh, we've we've established a World Trade Organization, to, uh, and countries you know poor countries around the world have reorganized their economies around the the trade the trade structures and other structures that. Uh, that uh, uh, you know, that, that have been encouraged by our, our policies and, uh, and others, um, to reverse that overnight as a consequence of lockdown, uh, as you've as you heard, is uh, utterly devastating. Um, the World Health Organization um, actually estimated that, uh, that, I think it's the UN, estimated that 130 million people worldwide this year will be at risk of starvation, additional people because of the lockdowns, so 100 million people. Uh, the, the, I mean, it's not just starvation, but it's also health programs so programs like uh, there's a program called GAVI, which it basically encourages uh, and it provides immunization for to, to poor people around the world for their for their kids for diphtheria, pertussis, uh, you know, uh, uh, polio. Uh, th- those programs have been stopped or stalled because of the lockdowns.
3: And um, and if the tragic ironies uh, don't abound enough, the World Food Program, the UN's World Food Program, just won a Nobel Prize recognizing the it, important work that the World Food Program is trying to do. At the same time, we're undermining it with the policies, that the lockdown policies that so many Western nations are pursuing.
1: Yeah, I think, I think they're selfish, these lockdown policies. I think Dr. Goop is 100% correct. I think it's immoral.
3: Uh, I want to pick up uh, right there when we come back with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor at Stanford University Medical School. We'll be back with more.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this, this this is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. We're pleased to be joined by Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor at Stanford University Medical School. He's a physician, epidemiologist, health economist, public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable populations. We were talking before the break about uh, the morality of these lockdown policies. And uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, I don't uh, hear too many uh, public health professionals, medical doctors, speak in terms of morality, but it's refreshing that, that these lockdown policies are, number one, ineffectual, or maybe number two, they're ineffectual. Number one, they're immoral. Um, the moral case for it, uh, or the moral case against it, as it may be, Dr. Jay.
1: There's two aspects. I think we just talked about the effects that it's going to have catastrophically and directly on, on poor people around the world. We talk often about economy versus lives in this COVID trade off and the lockdown. But in fact, it's not just dollars we're talking about on the other side of this lockdown, it's lives itself. And I think 100 million lives or more are at stake, I think from uh, starvation alone. So I think it's too easy, the other side of this argument, pro-lockdowns, I had it too easy to say, look, if you can just save one life, we should do the lockdown. The problem is it's much more morally complicated. It's lives on both sides. The question is whose lives count? I'd say we should not be valuing the lives on the uh, that are damaged by the lockdown as zero, which is essentially if we've been doing. There's another aspect of the moral argument that has to do with who, we're at, who pays the cost of the lockdown domestically. The lockdown for people who are younger, let's say younger than 50, on net is incredibly damaging. So for instance, one in four young adults in the United States in June seriously considered suicide. I mean, that's a consequence of the isolation created by it and the depression that's created by it, the anxiety, depression. I think that is all directly a consequence of the lockdown. At the same time, those young adults face very little risk for mortality from COVID. In effect... Uh, children face no risk, yet we basically barred the schoolhouse doors to children across the country, despite uh, an acknowledged right to education. For we have an obligation as adults to provide the education of our children. We're not doing it.
3: Uh, you are one of the charter members of the Great Barrington Declaration, along with uh, Martin Kaldor from Harvard and uh, uh, Sinetra Gupta from Oxford, who we mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, I, I'm reading uh, at spiked online. I, I didn't realize this until uh, spiked covered it. Uh, Google. Is uh, diminishing, uh, int- trying to diminish interest in the uh, the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, among the top results, Google would prefer you to read is a hit piece from the ever conspiratorial Byline Times, which insinuates the scientists have an ulterior, shady motive. Google is also happy for you to read about pranksters signing up to the declaration using fake names like Doctor Johnny Bananas, as well as critical commentary from the Guardian and Wired. But it does not want you to read the declaration for yourself and make up your own mind um the impetus for the declaration and uh, your reaction to how uh, google and and big tech is treating it
1: the art declaration the impetus for it we actually have been discussing it i think that uh, we are calling for a return to rational public health policy that accounts for everyone's health not just people who, who have covid um to account for uh, uh to, to, to adopt a policy that takes advantage of the fact that uh, younger people are actually at much lower risk of um, dying from COVID than they are from flu, from whereas older people are very, very at high risk from, from COVID. So the argument of the declaration is that to redirect resources to protect the vulnerable, hence the term focused protection, while letting other people non-vulnerable people who face much greater risks from the lockdowns than they do from COVID. Let, let let them live their lives. Let them be free so that they don't face the psychological, physical, medical harms from the lockdowns. Um, I think that's 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 the key impetus behind this, is a return to rational public health policy. I have been utterly shocked by, by the, 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 the suppression um, and censorship by the by, around this now in the United States, I think it's, it's sort of resolved itself, but I think now it's a word now the top hit on Google. If you type in great Barrington declaration, but around the world, that's still not true. I don't think. And I just can't understand it. I mean, this is, uh, I think, uh, a, a, it's, it's not a fringe movement. Thousands and thousands of, of public health people, doctors around the world have signed this declaration. Um, it's, it's, it's a absolutely mainstream, uh, call to, Return to a, a rational public health policy. So, suppression of this seems like it's, I mean, they're talking about anti science. Censorship itself is anti science.
3: And and it, one of the things, I mean, it, it's self evident, but I, I suppose it's worth mentioning. I mean, uh, just the three names I mentioned, including yours, not to mention the hundreds and, as you say, thousands of public health professionals and academics and medical doctors who've signed this declaration. I mean, these are people who are just as credentialed, if not more so than any expert who uh, uh, supports the lockdown policy. I mean, they're just so it, it's just remarkable that you wouldn't want people that have the same sort of training and expertise and, and knowledge to be interacting, to have the best possibility to, to, so that everybody sort of run the traps and every possible option, what the costs and benefits are, and you get the best uh, informed public policy.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we sort of landed on this policy of lockdowns almost by panic, you know, sometime in March or February. Or and, now March, you know, March. and now it's just knee
3: jerk. And now it's just knee jerk defending it, regardless of the evidence.
1: Yeah, I think that. I think that that's my view. I mean, I, I've now been in several debates with people who are pro lockdown, and it's very difficult to get them to acknowledge the cost of the lockdown. I mean, the cost is, in terms of lives. Uh, so I just, I, I think um, at this point, I think uh, it, it is very, very important that uh, these views. Which i I'm actually I, I stress to your listeners these are absolutely mainstream views these are not fringe views these are these were part of actually the basic plan for how to deal with pandemics like this before COVID, which were basically violated these these deserve a public a, a reason public hearing you know if if we're wrong then fine show us the evidence but i think what i don't think we're wrong i think god uh, the evidence is now overwhelming that the lockdowns are causing such catastrophic damage that we have to rethink the policy. The nice thing about this is that we actually have a better policy that we propose in the Great Bridge Declaration. Focus protection. Protect the vulnerable. What we're doing now is essentially exposing the vulnerable. If you're 63 and you're a clerk because you're an essential worker because the virus, even though you're high risk in mortality, why not use our you know, workplace disability laws or, or, you know, sort of to to protect someone like that, or, you know, give reasonable accommodations. So a 62 year old teacher can teach online, whereas a 30 year old teacher can, you know, so a 62 year old can teach, help the 30 year old teacher make lesson plans. They make, be creative to protect the vulnerable, use the resources for that. Don't quarantine the healthy, which is what we've done. It's the exact, our current policy is almost exactly the opposite of the right one. Quarantining the healthy, and exposing the vulnerable.
3: He is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor at Stanford University Medical Center, physician, epidemiologist, health economist, public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable populations, and one of the charter members of the Great Barrington Declaration as well. And by the way, on the Great Barrington Declaration, you know, ordinary uh, laymen like myself can go and sign up uh, to, to the declaration as well, and I encourage you to do so. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thanks for joining us, appreciate it. Thank you very much for
0: your time. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the show. Well, uh, Joe Biden is um, not in tip top debate form when he's out on the campaign trail. He was uh, en route to a, a voter mobilization event in Ohio, sparsely attended voter mobilization effort for uh, Biden. And on the tarmac, he uh, had this to say
12: I got in trouble when we were running against the senator who was a Mormon,
3: uh, the, the governor, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, his name is Mitt Romney. You may remember him. Joe Biden clearly doesn't. And then we get on the ground in Ohio.
12: I'm running as a proud
3: Democrat for the Senate. Still wants to just go back to the Senate. Please let me go back to the Senate. Well, uh, one thing Joe Biden has been lucid on is his unwillingness to answer the question about court packing. And it's just such a remarkable precedent. I think even honest Democrats will say yes to the idea that, I mean, if that's the standard, then every politician could simply say, I'm not going to answer any questions on anything that may make headlines until after the election. Then I'll tell you my positions. That's an interesting way to approach providing information to the public to make an informed decision for all of these civic minded Democrats that uh, prattle on about their civic mindedness. Ben Sass addressed that senator from Nebraska on uh, Chris Wallace's show on Sunday.
1: It's grotesque that Vice President Biden won't answer that really basic question. And it isn't just one branch of government. What they're really talking about or refusing to talk about is a suicide bombing of two branches of government. What they're talking about is blowing up the deliberative structure of the United States Senate by abolishing the filibuster, making it possible to turn the Senate into just another House of Representatives, where every two years, by a 51-49 or 49-51 majority, wow. major portions of American life change. And they're not about doing that. To pack the Supreme Court. We have seen a politicization of the court since Robert Bork in 1987 where the left wants to turn it into a super legislature to advance things that they can't get done through the electorate. That is not what textualists want. I don't say that isn't what conservatives want. That is not what people who know what a judge's job is should want.
3: That's right. It's what political hacks like Sheldon Whitehouse want, as uh, was so written in an amicus brief. In a case involving the NRA in the state of New York, White House, my home state senator of Dick Durbin, of course, the Supreme Court is not well and the people know it. Perhaps the court can heal itself before the public demands it be restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics. Right. Uh, this is uh, predates the Amy Coney Barrett nomination, of course, before the public demands it be restructured to reduce the influence of politics. Sure, that's what they want. They uh, want, in fact, what Senator Sass said to be uh, for it to be a super legislative body that uh, reimagines and reinterprets constitutional law, including precedent for all the discussion today about Amy Coney Barrett's uh, allegiance to stare decisis, Uh, precedents in the area of religious liberty, in the area of Second Amendment rights. Uh, Perhaps if we had uh, 11 or 13 Supreme Court justices, we could roll back the decisions in Heller and McDonald that established the Second Amendment as an individual right. And let's go back to our false interpretation of it being strictly related to a well-regulated, strictly uh, related to a well-regulated militia, for example. Yeah, he's exactly right. This is about fundamentally changing the court to fundamentally change via the court America.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Twitter, at Proft and at Dan Prof Show. No, uh, China did not win the trade war, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, debate won way back when at debate one, started a trade war with China, and China won. Not really. A uh, new paper by Yang Zhu, University of Minnesota, looks at the impact of the uh, tariff back and forth. The uh, welfare effects of the trade war, the paper estimates that the trade war costs China $35 billion, or about three-tenths of a percent of GDP. Cost the U.S. about $15.5 uh, or eight one hundredths of a percent of U.S. GDP, by the way, benefits Vietnam by about $400 million or almost two tenths of a percent of their GDP, right? The changing of the supply line, staying in the Far East, but moving so many companies, manufacturers moving from China to places like Vietnam, Singapore, elsewhere. So as I've said on this show, and I know to some Trump supporters disagree, but that's okay you know, you tax something, you get less of you. They tax their consumers and we tax ours in response or or vice versa. So it's sort of a self-inflicted wound. However, that said, there is clearly an indication, as the Trump administration properly suspected, as even Larry Kudlow, a free marketeer, has articulated, that the United States has a lot of bargaining power. And this war is much more detrimental to the Chinese communists and unfortunately the Chinese people, by extension, than it is to. Uh, U.S. and the uh, consumption of U.S. citizens. So just point of order, if you want to get into the particulars, if, you know, maybe the nonpartisan debate commission will see its way fit to actually have another presidential debate, wouldn't that be nice? President Trump and Joe Biden could get into this in more detail. To get into this in more detail with us, we're pleased to be joined again by Christopher Whalen, who's an investment banker and chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, author of Ford Men, from Inspiration to Enterprise and Inflated. How Money and Debt Built the American Dream, also the editor for the Institutional Risk Analyst. Christopher Whalen. thanks for joining us. Uh, why do you give us a stop, look, and listen on Manhattan. Uh, last time we spoke, uh, uh, you were sort of giving us a, a sense of the topography during the COVID lockdowns, and, and I wonder if that's changed at all, p- perhaps worsened even.
5: Well,
4: I would say there's certainly more vehicular traffic during the day, but the streets in Midtown are largely deserted. There's no tourists, there's no business activity. The utilization of office buildings, for example, is probably less than 20% right now. So in the neighborhoods where people live, it's different. You have a more or less back to normal with masks, with distancing, right? But there's large parts of the city that are empty. Broadway, the entire west side, you know, where the entertainment district is located, is very quiet. You go in the middle of Times Square right now, there's barely any people. So... You know, New York is in bad shape. And I would tell you that because of the mismanagement of Mayor Bill de Blasio, I see a default looming in the horizon. You know, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, has got to be the tough guy in this conversation because, like Illinois, right, these are all Democrats. And they are refusing to cut back even though we're missing half a million people in New York City, simply because they're expecting to be saved. But I think even if Joe Biden were to win the presidency, the federal government can't write this check, and they can't keep writing the check. So Cuomo, for example, has said no to borrowing to cover the gap in New York City. And Mayor de Blasio, the teachers' union, all the good guys here in town basically want to borrow to keep things as they are. But there's nobody on the subways. The bus utilization is very light. And it's clear that we're going to have to realign the city economy and the public sector to match the need, right? And they don't want to talk about that right now. So
3: I, I was in Las Vegas over the weekend, so talking to the staff that actually is still employed at when you have uh, uh-huh. hotels and casinos at you know half speed at 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 best. And you know, one guy I'm talking to basically said, "Look." Um, this is worse than 2008. This is worse. And, and of course, yes. Las Vegas was hammered in 2008 like almost no place in America in terms of uh, uh, foreclosures and the like. He said it's worse. You know, it was bad, but we were still working. Things were still open. There was some Correct. sense of a, a horizon. This, there's no sense of it. And when you have structural impediments to getting back and you don't know how long they're going to be in place, just for frankly, the number of flights coming from places like New York and Chicago to Las Vegas being a fraction of what they normally are said, we're just waiting for the, the real consequences to be visited upon so many people that have been propped up over the last three or four months, but that are teetering, like the guy I was talking to said, who's a driver, said, you know, I haven't paid my mortgage in six months. I've got the forbearance. If, if forbearance ends and then I got to make a lump sum payment, I don't have that money. Where am I going to get that money, for
4: example? Well, no, it, it, it's exactly right. The impact of this on the bottom third of society, whether they rent or own a house, for example, is terrible. And it's more like the 1930s in a sense that you've had disruption of industries that are not going to come back. You know, when my clients come to me and say, Chris, what about the banks this quarter? You know, we're doing earnings this week, right? Mm -hmm. I say to them, look, it's not 2008 where we were flushing bad securities and bad mortgages, right? And it was just in that one corner of the market. This is very broad. This is touching airlines, planes, which used to be, you know, the blue chip assets of the world, airline leases commercial real estate, there's a whole bunch of sectors, restaurants, you name it, hotels you mentioned. You know, here in town, there's a couple of Marriott's open. The bigger chains have cut back. They are open, though. The JW Marriott on Central Park South is open. But the rest of the independents in town, typically locally owned real estate with a building and they hire a management company to run the hotel, they're closed. There's no reason for them to be open and they don't have a network to bring them customers, right? They were dependent on tourists right that tourist volume is what filled all those buildings and and much like many other cities around the u.s
3: i want to go back to Harris and the piece you wrote in american conservative where you said about the national mortgage settlement because this is an important point that i don't know how many people outside our listening audience get but they could repeat it properly understood harris and her ilk were taxing the victims in the national mortgage settlement properly understood explain
4: in a sense that they refused to prosecute the bad actors You know, Larry Summers, Greenspan, Barack Obama, they all said, uh oh, Timmy Geithner, we can't prosecute the bankers. So instead, they levied penalties on these banks. And so the shareholders pay. And who are the shareholders? Pension funds, the teachers' pension fund. These are the people who paid for Kamala Harris. Consumers pay because the cost of getting a mortgage is higher than it was 10 years ago. The cost of servicing a mortgage is much higher. And these characters on the left think this is great. Let me give you another very important example. All of this forbearance with these loans, when we have to clean up the mess, you could see some very large mortgage companies fail because of the cost. And again, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, they all think this is great because they figure the government will come in and pick up the pieces, right? No. Believe me, the Department of Housing and Urban Development is not ready to clean up a mess like this. You know, we've got to be careful of what we mess with in this economy because, to your point earlier, right, about COVID, there are lots of pieces that are not going to come back immediately.
3: And I want to go back to the the point you raised about borrowing uh, de Blasio, the teachers' unions public sector unions. Mm. They're happy to borrow uh, Jay Powell, sure. you know the municipal facility that he set up uh, in Illinois. The governor is saying if we don't get uh, our graduated income tax through, then we'll go back to the municipal facility again, already taken one point two billion that we wouldn't have otherwise got in a bond issuance, probably uh, or shouldn't have at least. And so what about this? This seems to be the default to some extent of both parties, which is just keep printing money and have uh, Jay Powell keep uh, the, the economy liquid through um, through the Fed. And uh, we'll figure it out when we have to figure it out, when uh, enough people, I guess, say it's okay to come out and resume acting like human beings again.
4: Well, precisely. But also this notion that, you know, collectivist socialist policies are going to somehow be helpful is crazy. You know, Kamala Harris wants to give poor uh, black families, a down payment and other subsidies to go buy a house. Mm-hmm. And what we've learned in the mortgage industry is that if there's no skin in the game, that loan's going to default. And more importantly, the cost of taking care of a house, especially if you're in Chicago, for example, or New York, and you've got to pay the local taxes that have been uh, established by our friends in the Democratic Party. You can't afford the loan there. You know, they were fighting about who's rich. Remember the other day, 400000 from Biden? Well, Guys, you know, you can't even live in New York City for less than $100,000, $150,000 a year. And most small businesses, liquor stores, things like that, restaurants, that's about what they make. They're lucky to make six figures. So how do you survive, given the cost structure? You, you don't. you got to move. So I think a lot of changes, good and bad, are going to come from this COVID experience. I think we're going to see people look to live in smaller communities, which is good. And if you have babies, I think that choice is pretty much made for you. You don't want to be here. Between the health and the you know, the lack of protection from crazy people, uh, the threats that are being made by some of the people in the black community against businessmen here in New York, what do they think is going to happen? They're going to leave. The rich people can leave, and they will. And then this state is going to be in a, a bad situation, I believe.
3: And it's not going to be the only one. Christopher Whelan, investment banker, chairman of Whelan Global Advisors, author of Ford Men from Inspiration Enterprise and Inflated. A Money and Debt, Built the American Dream, also editor for the Institutional Risk Analyst. Chris Whalen, thanks for joining us.
4: Have a great day, guys. Take care.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. Moving from our conversation with uh, Christopher Whalen about reclaiming economic institutions to now a discussion about reclaiming academic institutions, scholarly institutions. And uh, a um, unlikely ally, Brett Stevens, the uh, never Trumper center right ish columnist, in New York Times on the 1619 Project, New York Times sponsored Pulitzer Prize winning. Uh, He uh, offers a few sops to uh, 1619 Project, saying that uh, it does not reject American values. Uh, He, uh, however, comes to the conclusion, as fresh concerns of the 1619 Project make clear, like, for example, uh, their uh, confusion, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the founder's confusion on whether she actually meant to say 1619 is the actual founding uh, year of America. And that's what should be considered the uh, year that uh, a uh, African slave first uh, appeared on America's shores. Or that was just uh, a point of reference for discussion, just part of the ambition to rethink the country's founding that not a minor point to Brett Stevens. And he says uh, for all of its virtues, buzz spinoffs and a Pulitzer prize, the 1619 Project has failed, has failed. Journalists are most often in the business of writing the first rough draft of history, not trying to have the last word on it. We're best when we try to tell truth with a lowercase T following evidence and directions on not the capital T truth of a pre-established narrative in which inconvenient facts get discarded. You know, like the basis for the Civil War, the 1619 Project discarded. Another example. Uh, and for Brett Stevens's piece criticizing the 1619 project, saying that it had failed, he was rebuked by the New York Times Guild. Uh, of course, he was. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Peter Wood, President, National Association of Scholars. Uh, and uh, uh, NAS has taken the position that the Pulitzer Board should rescind the Pulitzer Prize that was conferred to Nicole Hannah Jones, the founder of the 1619 project. Peter Wood, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
10: Thanks for having me on this momentous day. Yeah. <laughs>
3: um, why? Why even? Um, uh, why even bother having it rescinded? I mean, it's sort of like uh, asking the Nobel Committee to rescind the Nobel Peace Prize they confer to Yasser Arafat, isn't it? I mean, uh, all they've done is uh, diminish the value of that uh, award, and so people will pay less attention to it.
10: Well, we considered calling on the New York Times uh, directly, but since the Times had established a pattern over the last year of utterly ignoring its critics on the 1619 issue, it looked like the Pulitzer would have been a a softer target. Mm -hmm. Uh, Never really expected that they would rescind it, but we did think that calling on them to rescind it might attract attention uh, in Good quarters, and uh, the fact that uh, Stevens jumped in uh, two days later with his uh, uh, three thousand word full page op ed, uh, I think made our point. And he didn't reference our petition or our letter, but he certainly uh, had read it closely because everything he says in his uh, uh, piece reflects the litany of criticisms that we made. So, I'm
3: sorry, whoever, whatever editor at the New York times, let that column go probably will be fired in short order. I presume based on their standard for the op-ed page, right? Um, I, I, well, I go ahead.
10: You know, my, my hunch about this is that it got green lighted with the idea that uh, if uh, there was a uh, real turmoil, they would just blame it all on Stevens and fire him. But we'll, we'll see. Um, Yesterday, the uh, Times came out with a Schultzberger, uh, an official statement saying they fully stand behind the 1619 project. Sure, of course uh, they
3: do. What, what, what could they do now? I mean, they have from the outset. And, and this is, that's what's interesting to me. They have from the outset, they continue to, despite the uh, academic criticism, scholarly criticism, from across the political spectrum, from uh, historians who are men and women of the left— uh, and, and and yet that doesn't uh, have any sway with the New York Times. Why do you think that is?
10: Well, I think the New York Times has transformed itself um, pretty thoroughly from being a newspaper to being a uh, agent of propaganda for the progressive left. And uh, so... Why should they care about the facts when they've got a a narrative, as they like to call it, that uh, suits their purposes? Uh, It's been well-received within the schools of education and by many history teachers in the K-12 world. So uh, they think they're winning. I think that uh, they've pretty much uh, bitten off more than they can really chew. uh, Americans are not all that well-informed about our history, but they get the sense that the American Revolution was not fought to protect slavery, as Hannah Jones puts it. Right. Uh, they get the sense that uh, Abraham Lincoln was not a, a racist intent on immiserating blacks in America. Uh, the, the claims made in the 1619 Project are so completely fantastical and outrageous that even though they can sell them to the sorts of people who go to schools of education, they can't really sell them to the public.
3: Well, and Nicole Hannah Jones, when you're getting beyond history to more contemporary commentary, I mean, she is someone who during the height of the rioting and looting on America streets talked about, uh, you know, rethinking, retermining, returning, uh, stealing as symbolic taking. Uh, essentially <laughs> suggesting it was a form of uh, sort of self-offered self reparations. You know, these are difficult uh, ideas to sell, I think, to wide swaths of common sense Americans. And so I wonder if we should take much encouragement from Brett Stevens and some of these left-leaning academics who have spoken out about 1619, or if this just represents sort of uh, a, a transparent effort to uh, appear more—
10: uh, even-handed than they actually are. Well, I think Stevens is embarrassed by the paper that he threw in his slot with, and uh, there's sincerity in his piece. Um, he's uh, in an awkward position now, and if the, the candidate he's supporting wins the presidential election, I'm not sure where he goes. He's uh, he's not, not a blood ally of the uh Uh, movements, but he's uh, now beholden to them. So he's in an awkward spot. As to the eminent historians who from the beginning have complained, uh, they may be people of the left for the most part, they are, but they are people whose whole career depends on the uh, acknowledgement of historical facts. And for the New York Times to wave a Magic wand and say the facts have disappeared and we've got a new story doesn't sit well with them for for good honest intellectual reasons. Well, it's, how much clout yeah. they carry, you know, remains to be seen. But
3: well, I guess it's I guess that's an encouraging note. You find where you can that there are some left academics who still value their own intellectual integrity. That's um, I guess that's mm-hmm. encouraging. Uh, he is Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars. Peter, thanks for
7: joining us.
0: But for heaven's sake, away away and a voice is vang like the angel singing away away away. Listen to podcast of the show at danpopfshow.com.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Our friend Joseph Epstein writing in the Wall Street Journal. One of the plummiest targets for attack by intellectuals in the 1950s was conformity. Conformists in those days were thought to reside in American suburbs. They were judged unimaginative, thinking dull thoughts, living out lives of quiet desperation, uh, going to their grave with the song still in their heart. Uh, How would it pain the officially tolerant of our day to think themselves conformists? Yet to be tolerant today entails a strict conformity of opinion. They might wear Rococo beards and ponytails and tennis shoes with tuxedos, have had 20 affairs and three abortions, and attended what the world thinks are the best schools. But all, they all know that should they depart the deep grooves of locked-in opinion that is the source of their virtue, they risk social excommunication. And few are willing to risk that. A standard comic figure is the liberal who professes a set of grand opinions and lives a richly comfortable life in opposition to them all. Oh, yes. People don't preach what they practice. Charles Murray. Distillation. Still, it's one thing to laud oneself for the superiority of one's own opinions, and quite another to want to destroy others for what one deems the moral inadequacy of theirs. In the current political climate, this is what those who pride themselves on their tolerance are all too happy to do. What is unprecedented and unhappily becoming a contemporary condition is the intolerance of the ostensibly tolerant for even the slightest disagreement. Should you encounter one of the grandly tolerant of our day, my advice is to hear him out on the perfection of his opinions, Then let him know that you view him as the Jews viewed the czar. That is, he should live and be well, but not too close to you. (laughs) I love that. Very good piece by uh, Joseph Epstein on the tyranny of the tolerant. And this flies in formation with what uh, Tom Klingenstein over at uh, the Claremont Institute, board chairman there, had to say about the 2020 election and understanding just exactly what's at stake and what the identitarians necessarily demand their standard bearer being Joe Biden, whether wittingly or not, that's the position he's put himself in, and this is the implication of their ideology.
9: As should be immediately clear, achieving this proportional representation requires a never-ending redistribution of wealth and power from some groups, and not just from whites, to other groups. Such a massive redistribution can only be achieved by a tyrannical government. And like in all tyrannies, one where dissenters are silenced.
3: Dissenters being silenced. And again, if everything that is wrong is systemically wrong, then a revolution is required. And
9: what's required to engender revolution? Convincing people to change their values. They must get us to believe that national borders and colorblindness are racist. That we are not one culture but many. That the most important thing in our history the thing around which all else pivots, is slavery. More broadly, the multiculturalists must get us to believe that we are unworthy, not just that we have sinned, which of course we have, but that we are irredeemably sinful.
3: Mm -hmm. And America is irredeemably bad, thus it needs to be changed wholesale. And the previous bite you heard from Mr. Klingenstein tells you how they would seek to change it. And... uh... What they would seek to install in the place of our representative republic for more on this. We're pleased to be joined by Gad Saad, who is the host of the YouTube series, The Saad Truth, the author of the recently released The Parasitic Mind, how infectious ideas are killing common sense. Uh, Professor Saad is also a uh, professor of marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University. Uh, Professor Saad, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Cheers.
3: So uh, what about uh, these um, viral ideas of which you write and and with uh, Joseph Epstein and Tom Klingenstein have uh, spoken that are attacking the frontal lobes of Westerners and depriving them of their common sense? How does one go about uh, repelling this virus?
1: Well, I should just mention first maybe a couple of examples of what idea pathogens are. So postmodernism would probably be the granddaddy of all idea pathogens because it basically argues that there are no objective truths. We are all shackled by subjectivity. We are all constrained by our personal biases, which, of course, is a problem because, as a scientist, I wake up every day thinking that there are truths to be discovered. Now, of course, science works in provisional truths, right? What was true 300 years ago might no longer be true today, but we do wake up thinking that there are objective truths. Well, postmodernism completely throws that option out the window. Now, so you might imagine, if you allow for such a intellectual terrorism to, to flourish on campuses, it results in all kinds of lunacy, right? Boys too can menstruate, there are no innate differences between men and women, biophobia, which is the rejection that biology has any explanation of human affairs. So once you take all of these idea pathogens, uh, it becomes death of the West by a thousand cuts, we lose our capacity to engage in critical thinking. How do we resolve it? Well, we return to a commitment to what the scientific method taught us. Let the evidence lead you to the right position rather than hysteria and emotions and so on.
3: When we come back with Professor Gad Saad, author of The Parasitic Mind, uh, let's talk about uh, the origins of these idea pathogens. More with uh, Gad Saad right after this. And
10: I don't
8: understand
0: The more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Prof show.
3: We're back with Professor Gad Sa talking about the parasitic mind, his new book. And uh, I'm interested in the origins of these idea pathogens of which you speak. How did people go from uh, not knowing what transgenderism is five minutes ago, including the Democrat nominee for president, to it being the civil rights uh, issue of our time, as Joe Biden has termed it?
1: Yeah, it is indeed. Well, that's what's so beautiful about these idea pathogens. I mean, to draw the analogy with an actual virus, the beauty of viruses is that they are so intricately designed to screw your system, right? They get into your cells, and then they use your own circuitry to replicate. Well, that's the beauty of idea pathogenism. They start off with a noble goal, for example, equity feminism. It's a wonderful thing, right? Men and women should be equal under the law. Who wouldn't support that? But then you go from equity feminism to militant feminism, which basically argues, in the pursuit of seeking to eradicate Sexism. We have to argue that men and women are indistinguishable. So in the pursuit of a noble cause, you end up murdering and raping truth. And I argue that we should be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. I could get on board all of these social justice causes without ever ceding an inch of truth. Mm
3: -hmm. Thinking about this, though, in terms of the foundational problem. It seems to me this is all sentimentalist thinking, right? This is all sort of feeling. So it's like a equality. You throw out a buzzword, well sure, I'm for equality, and then so it necessarily follows all of these other things under the rubric of equality, except it doesn't necessarily follow what they're saying. In fact it doesn't follow at all. It's contrary to it. It's the identitarian politics on race where you're changing out one racial order for another, and the problem, as Shelby Steele has pointed out, is the and the fundamental problem of slavery was the idea of installing a racial order, that race was the means to power. That's the fundamental infirmity of slavery or Jim Crow or any other racial or but yet it's repeating itself from a different perspective here in 2020 America so it starts with feeling racial equality is good thus we should institute a racial order no that actually doesn't logically follow but there's a real disconnect among a wide swath of westerners on the topic
1: exactly look people are cognitive misers meaning that they are intellectually lazy so emotions are a fast and frugal heuristic for taking a position, right? So at times emotions work well. If I'm walking down an alley and I see four young men loitering and my fear response is triggered, well, in this case, my emotional system worked perfectly. On the other hand, when it comes to issues of civilizational importance, I shouldn't be letting my emotional system take over. And and I have a chapter in the book where I talk about the distinction between thinking versus feeling. It's not that humans are thinking animals or feeling animals. It's that we should trigger the right system at the right time.
3: Cognitive misers, by the way. I love that. That was the name of my 80s garage band. Uh, It was Pat Pat (laughs) Chop Boy's cover band. Great phrase. I love it. So why can't uh, ideas rooted in common sense have the same viral uh, experience? So, you know, Uh, They're so good at connecting uh, phony, apocalyptic outcomes to their prescriptions. Uh, Why can't we connect the actual likely outcomes to their prescriptions? I mean, Flannery O'Connor observed, right, sentimentality ultimately leads to the gas chamber. Well, why can't we um, do a better job of of explaining, connecting the dots for people such that they truly do understand where this leads, a place they don't really want to go?
1: Because most people are extraordinarily apathetic and cowardly, including professors. First of all, <laughs> it takes intellectuals to come up with really dumb ideas. That's why these idea pathogens were all spawned on universities. But then a few very loud ideologues on campus can keep the rest of the folks, uh, you know, cowed and silent. So, so to draw an analogy, on 9-11, it didn't take 190,000 terrorists to bring down the Twin Towers. It took 19 committed zealots to alter the landscape yeah. uh, of, of New York, so you don't need four thousand pink-haired radical feminists on campus to keep the rest of us quiet. So, if people were to find their spine, develop some testicular fortitude, then we could win this battle of ideas. If most people subcontract this fight to a few courageous people, we will lose the battle.
3: And and what does losing the battle implicate? What does it mean?
1: If you mean epistemologically, we regress back to being uh, in the Dark Ages, right? We we already had the scientific revolution. We already had the Enlightenment. We thought we had won these battles. Look, I come from identity politics. My family escaped. We're Lebanese Jews who escaped Lebanon under imminent threat of execution. So I know what identity politics taken to an extreme results in a society. So imagine how disheartening it is for me to see the idea pathogen of identity politics now being promulgated by one of the two parties in the United States, right? Everything with the Democrats is based on identity politics. So there are many ways by which we could lose the battle, one of which is we can have a a replication of what I escaped from 45 years ago in Lebanon. Mm
3: -hmm. Um, And so uh, let me ask you this. Do you think it, it unfortunately necessarily will disproportionately fall on people like you who have the standing in our identitarian culture to uh, invade on this topic. And I, I say the same even more more so than you. I, I've said this before. It, it's going to be conservative black academics like Glenn Lowry and uh, Walter Williams and Thomas Ol and the next generation behind them that are necessarily going to have to wage a, or, or shoulder a disproportionate share of the work in this battle because they have standing that me as some off-the-shelf white guy doesn't have.
1: Right. Well, by the way, I just had Glenn Lowry recently on my show, fantastic guy. And Thomas Sowell yes. was, was slaying these social justice warriors when all of us were in diapers. So yes. a true intellectual hero of mine. Uh, look, it might start off with professors leading the fight back against all this lunacy. But the reality is everybody has a stake in this. It's trench warfare. If you see somebody posting something on Facebook that you disagree with, challenge them politely. If you're sitting at a pub and someone says something you disagree with, Engage them in a debate. In other words, don't constantly walk away from opportunities to engage in debate because you're afraid to lose a friendship, because you don't want to judge others. There's a million reasons why people subcontract this fight onto others. No, your voice matters. Get engaged, activate your inner honey badger, and hopefully
3: we can play this battle. <laughs> Gad Saad, host of the YouTube series The Saad Truth, author of the most recently uh, – author of the recently released, his most recent book, The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Also, as I mentioned, he is a professor of marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University. Uh, professor Saad, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with
1: the book. Thank you so much. Runaway
0: you listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the show. Something else that needs clarification, and that's uh, Tony Fauci per this controversy over his usage a statement he made being used in a Trump commercial. Here is the uh, Trump commercial. I can't imagine that
8: anybody could be
3: doing more. So that uh, excerpted comment that Fauci made, Fauci went on with his gal pal, Jake Tapper, on CNN to complain about it.
0: I think so, Jake. I think it's really unfortunate and really disappointing that they did that. It's so clear that I'm not a political person, and I have never either directly or indirectly endorsed a political candidate. And to take a completely out of context statement
5: and put it in, which is obviously a political campaign ad, I I thought was really very disappointing. Uh, I understand I'm not
3: wanting to be in an ad, but he said what he said. And I'm sorry, but it's politicized. And in part, it's politicized because of the performance of Tony Fauci and the CDC. And uh, in part, it's because politicized because you have public health officials like Tony Fauci and Redfield not correcting the record when the left says things that are factually incorrect. And so the campaign is left to do it. Somebody needs to do it. It's not going to be the D.C. press corps. Here's what Tony Fauci said verbatim quote on April 13th, you know, after uh, two weeks to flatten the curve at the height of the outbreak, when the left argues that Trump was late to the dance, that Trump wasn't listening to the experts, that I would have listened to Fauci and Burks, especially Fauci. This is from somebody who's been canonized by the D.C. press corps and by Democrats on the Hill. They would have done what Fauci said, they say. So what did Fauci say at the time? April 13th. The first and only time that Dr. Burks and I went in and formally made a recommendation to the president to actually have a quote-unquote shutdown in the sense of strong mitigation, we discussed it. Obviously, there would be concerns by some, and in fact, that might have some negative consequences. Nonetheless, the president listened to the recommendation and went to the mitigation. Continuing, the next, second time that I went with Dr. Burks into the president and said 15 days are not enough, we need to go to 30 days. Obviously, there were people who had a problem with that because of the potential secondary effects. Nonetheless, at the time, the president went with the health recommendations and we extended it another 30 days. So I can only tell you what I know and what my recommendations were. But clearly, as happens all the time, there were interpretations of that response to a hypothetical question that I just thought it would be very nice for me to clarify. Right. Because at the time, the left was trying to sow division and uh, mischaracterize Fauci and Trump's working relationship. So here's the bottom line. You can agree or disagree with the president moving to advocate for effectively a national lockdown when he did. And I do disagree with that knee jerk reaction, whether at the federal or state level. But you can't say that he didn't listen to these experts that have been lionized and canonized by the DC press court and the so- Democrat socialists who said they would do the same things that president Trump did per Tony Fauci at the height of the outbreak and thus engendered the same consequences economically and in every other way, the only difference now is they're sticking with the lockdown and bus policies where President Trump, of course, is moving to reopen and has been for some time uh, more consistent with our conversation with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya earlier in the show, setting the record straight because if the campaign doesn't do it and people like me on the radio don't do it, it's not going to get done, including my Tony Fauci. This is the problem.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. you also follow Podcast there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Danproft and at Danproft Show. This was an interesting interview. Dr. David Nabarro is the uh, World Health Organization's special envoy on COVID 19. And he's a medical doctor, but he's a long time been in in government, uh, operating as a public health professional. He was on uh, British TV with Scottish broadcaster Andrew Neal. And he was asked a question about uh, Sunetra Gupta's observations about lockdown policy. Dr. Sinatra Gupta is um, one of the leading epidemiologists in the world. She's at University of Oxford. This is remarkable with the intellectual firepower we're talking about here, not to mention the evidentiary record that has been amassed. Nonetheless, Dr. Nabarro asked by Andrew Neal about what Gupta said, how these lockdown policies not just hurt those that are being locked down, but you know, she passed an economics one oh one on one course during her studies in epidemiology, and so she understands how interconnected economies are.
2: But we had Professor Sunetra uh, Gupta from Oxford University on, and she was implying, and I'm interested in you because you have a global mandate, a global view, was that a, a problem we don't think about in lockdowns is that they're very nationalistic. That if we lock down our economy, then it hits our economy. But it also means we are not buying stuff. We're not trading with weaker economies. We are not just destroying our own jobs. We're destroying the jobs of all those that,
11: in the poorer parts of the world
2: that export to us.
11: That seemed to me to be a reasonable point. Really important point by Professor Gupta. I want to say it again. Uh, we in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as a primary means of control of this virus. The only time we believe a lockdown is justified is to buy you time to reorganise, regroup, rebalance your resources, protect your health workers who are exhausted. But by and large, we'd rather not do it. Just look at what's happened to the tourism industry, for example, in the Caribbean or in the Pacific, because people aren't taking their holidays. Look what's happened to smallholder farmers all over the world because their markets have got dented. Look what's happening to poverty levels. It seems that we may well have a doubling of world poverty by next year. We may well have at least a doubling of child malnutrition, because children are not getting meals at school, and their parents in poor families are not able to afford it. This is a terrible, ghastly global uh, catastrophe, actually. And so we really do appeal to all world leaders Stop using lockdown as your primary control method. Develop better systems for doing it. Work together and learn from each other. Mm. But remember, lockdowns just have one consequence that you must never, ever uh, belittle, and that is making poor people an awful lot poorer.
3: Oh, so there are other considerations. Who would have funked that? Don't tell politicians named de Blasio, Cuomo, Lightfoot, Pritzker, Whitmer, Newsom, Garcetti... I mean, it's just an incredible statement uh, from somebody who is the World Health Organization's special envoy on COVID-19. Was this covered on the Sunday talkies? Has this been covered by all of these regional outposts of the D.C. press corps? It's stunning. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by David Marcus, New York correspondent for the Federalist contributed to the New York Post as well. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I mean, uh, the World Health Organization's point person on the uh, pandemic, which is really at this point, it seems to me, an endemic. You know, specific categories of people really are particularly uh, vulnerable. But it's sort of a, a stunning statement that you would think would um, inform the discussion we're having three weeks out from a presidential election.
12: It really is stunning. As it happens, I'm in the middle of writing a book about the coronavirus crisis. Don't tell me how it ends. That's what I was about to say is I I thought I knew where my ending point was because I have to deliver it soon. And then this thing dropped and I said, well, you know, this obviously has to be in there because this is such a remarkable reversal. When you go back to March uh, and you look at the decisions that we made, and then you move into April and May. And by May, you really had a lot of people, myself included, saying, listen, guys, there's legitimate competing interests here. And as you just pointed out, nobody wanted to hear it. I mean, you were killing grandma if you even raised these other concerns, whether it was cancer screenings or unemployment or poverty or all of these things. You 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 weren't allowed to talk about it for a good two, two and a half months. And then even when people did start talking about it, they, they would be publicly shamed and, uh, it, it, oh, oh my goodness, did, did, did we handle this? Uh, we did not handle this like adults as a society and we have a lot to learn from
3: it. Look, here's the thing too. And this is from a colleague of yours over at the New York post, uh, Carol Markowitz, how the lockdowns and the sort of, uh, every day is a different, uh, contest between Cuomo and de Blasio in New York city, just to use this as an example with respect to the schooling. Um, how lockdowns are affecting parents like hers. And and you just wonder, you know, sort of when that reaches critical mass with people who just are at least a little bit left of the edge of sanity and say, a Republican, Democrat, th- this is insane. And I see what's happening to my children and I see what's happening to my neighborhood and we cannot continue this.
12: Well, I mean, Carol's exactly right. And, you know, Carol and I uh, both live in Brooklyn. We both have school-age kids. And this is something that, that, you know, we've talked about and we've in fact taken different options because here in New York you can do a sort of hybrid where your kid's in class for a few days and at home for a few days. My kid's going to sort of like a learning pod. Like everyone's having to deal with with these uh, different situations. You know, one thing that I've said throughout this with specific regard to the schools to keep an eye on is that the teachers' unions better be careful because uh, if people start looking at these alternatives – and start to like them, right? We've already seen a spike in homeschooling. I think we'll we'll see a spike in sort of alternative situations for people from the public schools, not just because of the pandemic, but also because of things like critical race theory and a whole host of other issues uh, that public schools have. Um, but yeah, it, it puts a lot of pressure on parents. But I am somewhat hopeful that we might come out the other side uh, with a with a bigger basket of educational options
3: for our kids. The uh, um polling in the presidential race and just your gut on it. I mean, uh, one of the interesting numbers that was bandied about over the weekend is this idea that 56 percent of Americans feel they're better off today than they were four years ago, which usually is a a pretty good uh, bellwether of reelection. And frankly, it's well ahead of where George W. Bush was at this time, where Barack Obama was at this time in running for their second terms. And yet uh, the perception is that Trump is still flailing I don't know if that perception exactly comports with reality uh, based on a, a look at some of the other surveys that don't get as much attention including ones that were correct in 2016 like from the Trafalgar group. But um but but your your handle on that and also that you know the better off in spite of what's transpired over the last 8 months.
12: Uh, I mean I think looking at the polls when when you look at the top line when you look at the nationals when 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 you look at, at them in in total it's a pretty rosy picture for Biden. I think for a, a, a Trump supporter, for for somebody who's who's perhaps looking for evidence of a potential upset, one set of numbers that's, that's interesting is when you look at the real care politics average of battleground states uh, and where Trump is today versus Biden versus 2016. Trump's actually, at least as of yesterday, in slightly better shape yeah, uh, than he was. Right. And of course, those are the states that that'll turn it. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on. But but my goodness, I mean. Looking back on what happened in 2016, I think for anybody to to sit here today and say, oh, well, look at the polls. Biden's got this wrapped up would be
3: insane. I mean, now that the president was cleared by his doctors to have that rally in Sanford, Florida yesterday uh, and offering kisses to the crowd, too. That's how healthy he felt. Uh, The 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 cancellation of that second debate. This is seems to me wildly underreported, given what uh, we you know, the, the president's health condition three days before the debate was supposed to happen. I mean, that is a a huge opportunity for the uh, American people to see the two candidates again, and just you know waved off by the the nonpartisan quote unquote commission without uh, consequence or incident, and it just riles me.
1: It, look,
12: it, it's it's a Trump contracting COVID was a microcosm for the entire coronavirus crisis, right? He, he, I think it was, was late, early, one o'clock in the morning on Friday, the tweet came out that he had it. All day Saturday and Sunday, CNN and everybody else, they like, had him with two feet in the grave. And, oh, my goodness, the doctors are lying to us. And, and this could be so much worse than the White House is saying. And then, you know, two days later, it was clear, oh, well, maybe he is feeling okay. And you had the whole scandal of the, the drive around Walter Reed. I mean, it, it was it was all hysterical and ridiculous. And you're absolutely right that here we are. Clearly, the debate could have happened. Clearly, the debate commission overreacted. Um, and, and it's a shame. It's, it, it, it's it's everything wrong with how we've handled this, this pandemic by just freaking out, setting our hair on, on fire and not really thinking through the consequences of our actions.
3: He is David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, contributor to The New York Post as well. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
5: exposing
0: political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. Switching from our uh, discussion of uh, COVID with uh, David Marcus and uh, earlier in the show with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, getting uh, their reactions, both their reactions to what... uh, Uh, Dr. Nabarro from the WHO had to say about uh, lockdown policies. That's certainly part of the closing argument for President Trump needs to be. Uh, But in addition, the closing argument needs to frame the choice. For the American people and President Trump did a pretty good job of that in Sanford, Florida at uh, last evening's rally, Uh, just reminding people who he's up against. And then I want to get to uh, Tom Klingenstein who's the chairman of the board of Claremont Institute. We've had him on the show before. And many scholars from the Claremont Institute, which when it comes to defending America's founding values, there's no think tank that's better in America. Claremont Institute, Claremont Review of Books is just excellent. Uh, here's Trump in Sanford, Florida, yesterday on the radical left that he's up against.
5: These people are crazy. We have to win. Most important we've ever had. Biden has made a corrupt bargain exchange for his party's nomination. He's handed control to the socialists, the Marxists, and the left-wing extremists, and you know that. And he's got no strength left. He's got no power left. He's got nothing going. If he wins the radical left, we'll be running the country. And they're addicted to power. And God help us if they ever got it, because we would never have the same country again. And you couldn't make a comeback. You don't make comebacks from where they take us. Joe Biden and the Democrat Socialists will kill your jobs, dismantle your police departments, dissolve your borders. You know that. Release criminal aliens, confiscate your guns. No more Second Amendment. Get used to it. Destroy your suburbs and drive God from the public square. That's what's going to happen.
3: Yeah, it's a pretty good summary of the agenda, isn't it? And um This is nicely summed up by Klingenstein in this uh, 15 minute talk that he gave. Uh, It was interesting. that He felt compelled to offer it. And uh, what Trump is getting to, Klingenstein puts in a framework. The framework is revolution. Revolution. That is the proposition of the left. And uh, even though Joe Biden doesn't look like some radical revolutionary socialist, he's turned himself over to that element in the party, as has the entire Democrat Party. That's the point.
9: And Klingenstein makes three points. I wish to make three points. First, Trump is the perfect man for these times. Not all times, perhaps not most times, but these times. Second, Republicans are not doing a good job explaining the stakes in this election. They must explain, and this is my third point, that the Democratic Party, which has been taken over by its radical wing, is leading a revolution. This makes the coming election the most important one since the election of 1860.
3: Yeah, and uh, just in terms of what Biden does or doesn't understand, it's, it's almost immaterial, because if you're starting from the premise of the revolutionaries, then you're on the revolutionary program, aren't you? And uh, Klingenstein seizes on the use, the uh, obsessive use of systemic to describe all of America's problems. This is a key point.
9: But if indeed he believes that racism is in everything we do, that it is systemic, then he believes, whether he admits it or not, that the system must be overturned. Biden does not realize it. But he is calling for the overthrow of the American way of life. That's what's on the ballot. And, you know, our conversation earlier with uh, Gad Saad
3: uh, about uh, his book, The Parasitic Mind, and what was the point that he made? It didn't take 4,000 thousand Islamo-fascists to take down the World Trade Center. It took uh, 19. You know, the committed few. You have to at least appreciate the mindset and then make a threat assessment based on what the committed few are actually doing. And what do we see the committed few doing? What have they done over generations in the institutions that are supposed to provide the foundation for our civic life? Who has overtaken them? What are they producing? K through 12 education, the academy. Arts and entertainment even uh, much of our uh, religious institutions. Hmm. And so the choice, the choice.
9: As a contest between a man, Trump, who believes America is good, and a man, Biden, who is controlled by a movement that believes America is bad. That's
3: a pretty simple choice. You have a man who believes America is good, unabashedly pro-American and Trump. And you have a man controlled by a movement who believes America is irredeemably bad and must be overhauled, a revolutionary movement. And so what's the GOP's job? Well,
9: first and foremost, it's to uh, lean in to America's greatness. They must remind the American people that as a friend of mine is fond of saying, America has brought more freedom and more prosperity to more people than any country in the history of mankind. Most Americans know this, but this too, they need to hear from their leaders. Yeah, you need uh, to believe
3: that you're, you need to, well, you hear and thus believe that your leaders believe that. Does Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, any of the Democrat socialists? And so uh, to the point that he made at the outset, which I thought was an interesting one that he developed further, Mr. Klingenstein. Sophisticated guy, by the way, sophisticated uh, investor. Trump is the perfect person for this time.
9: No, President Trump has many faults. I myself sometimes cringe listening to him. Sometimes he is his own worst enemy. He is a braggart, often misinformed, petty, sometimes even vengeful. And yet, we are very lucky to have him. I am almost prepared to say that having him is providential. How else to explain that we find ourselves with this most unusual, most unprecedented man who has just the attributes most needed for this moment. At any other time, he might well have been a bad president. But in these times these revolutionary times, he is the best president we could have had. He has the indispensable attribute of a leader, courage. As a leader must, he goes where others are afraid to go. And he has common sense, which means he generally wants to go to the right place.
3: Courage and common sense cure a lot of faults. And uh, you've heard me talk about courage as the foundational attribute of, uh, of character many times on the show, uh, invoking C.S. Lewis, the formation of every virtue at its testing point. If
9: you don't have courage,
3: it's impossible to be virtuous, because you'll wilt when tested.
9: If we want to save our country, then we should support him unequivocally. I am. I think this election is that important and i think trump is that good and uh, i hope you'll share klingenstein's remarks
3: i tweeted out his uh, video presentation uh, at dan prof show uh, you should uh, send that to everyone you know who still retains a shred of sanity to inform their vote in the next three weeks this is dan
10: prof.
0: The podcast of the show at DanProftShow.com.
3: Welcome back to the show. Uh, turning to the matter of law and order. There continues to be little of either in stan in honor of Columbus Day, a group of protesters toppling the statues of former presidents Teddy Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln, shattering the entrance to the Oregon Historical Society in Portland's South Park Blocks neighborhood. Of course, why do you need a historical society if you're going to eliminate and rewrite history from the ground up? So this continues to be a particularly important issue in terms of the calculation of voters come November 3rd and early voting in between. And then this analysis from uh, the Washington Post crime rose unevenly when stay at home orders lifted. The racial disparity is the widest in years. What they did was an analysis of 27 cities looking at the rolling rate of violent crime by majority of a particular race neighborhood. So in majority white neighborhoods, violent crime fell by 30 percent while lockdown orders were in effect. Dipping to its lowest point in two years, once the orders were lifted, violent crime in those neighborhoods returned to pre-pandemic levels, but stayed below the average when compared with the previous two years. In majority black neighborhoods, the rate of violence remained relatively steady whilst lockdown orders were in effect, but rose dramatically after orders were lifted, peaking at 133 crimes per 100,000 residents in July, the highest level in the past three years. Crime in white and black neighborhoods fluctuated month to month, historically. But this year, the rate of increase in black neighbors has been the most dramatic, peaking higher than in 2018 and 2019 by about 10 and 8 percent, respectively. Meanwhile, violent crime rates in predominantly Asian, Hispanic, white neighborhoods have fluttered beneath their recent summer peaks. Again, this analysis by the Amazon Post, more than 800,000 crimes in cities, including L.A., Chicago, Dallas, Washington, Boston, Philadelphia and Seattle, to arrive at its findings. Gee, what do they have in common? Dominated by Democrats, perhaps? But the racial disparity is interesting. And it speaks to probably a number of sociological factors in addition to law enforcement and prosecution cultures. For more on this topic, as well as some new evidence in the Breonna Taylor case that only he has, Brandon Tatum, founder of TatumReport.com and former Tucson, Arizona police officer, joins us again. Brandon, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, Before we get to uh, the Breonna Taylor case and and some of the new information that you have exclusively at the Tatum Report, what about that, the uh, racial disparity in uh, the spike in crime across uh, more than two dozen major cities in America where once the lockdown orders were lifted, you had a, a real increase in violent crime in majority black neighborhoods that has sustained.
8: Well, I think that according to some of the things that you said, which is 100 percent facts, is that if you look at the, the uh, crime rates across the board in the white communities, they stayed the same and they decreased, you know, with, when there was a lockdown. In black communities, when there was a lockdown, they stayed the same and it increased when the lockdown were lifted. That should tell you something very um, something should be very revealing to you that in these inner cities in the black communities there's a lot of crime going on and I wish that people would understand just because there's disparities that being there's some level of discrimination or racism we need to attack culture and figure out why is there no white Chicago's or South Side Chicago's why is there no white situations where they're doing drive-bys every day we, we need to address the culture and the behaviors of individuals and stop trying to just simply pin it on race. We need to look at the environment that people are living in and try to make them better instead of pointing at, uh, blaming everybody else. And I, and I yeah. think that we can get a little further if we do.
3: Well, let, let me just give you an example, get your reaction in Chicago, my hometown. So nearly 3000 people have been shot so far this year, more than 620 murdered, mostly black and mostly younger men. And, um, the response has been uh, uh, to combine a non-prosecution culture in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office with a non-engagement culture in the Chicago Police Department. So, for example, on Columbus Day when they were the vandals were attacking statues in Portland, uh, here the Chicago Blackhawks statue in Chicago outside of the United Center was vandalized as well asked the Chicago FOP president about what the directive is from the mayor's office or from the police brass about what to do to protect city property, and he said the directive is there is no directive.
8: That's it's shameful. That's that's a failure in leadership. People are not leading. They're scared. They're cowards. And we don't need cowards to be leading in law enforcement or even leading in the cities. You know, how? How I just wonder. I, I watched in New York where they had the Jewish community yeah. go out and protest and and they had people go to jail. They arrested the leader and took him to jail. But these other people go out and protest and vandalize and destroy property by the millions. And they, they, they get a clap on the – you know, they get a, a round of applause. It is asinine to me what's going on in our country. And it's ironic that it's happening in Democratic-run cities. But it, it is a shame what these people are doing, and they're cowards. And, and people need to call it for what it is.
3: Uh, when we come back, uh, I want to turn to uh, this uh, exclusive information that uh, Brandon Tatum has obtained on the uh, Breonna Taylor case that uh, perhaps provides more context to what happened with her death. Uh, Brandon Tatum, founder of TatumReport.com and a former Tucson police officer, will be back with more. Right after that. I'm taking
8: what they're giving because I'm working for I living. Oh.
0: is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Brandon Tatum, friend of the show, founder of TatumReport.com, T-A-T-U-M, TatumReport.com, and former Tucson, Arizona police officer. And uh, Brandon, uh, you were able to obtain um, information in the Breonna Taylor case that is exclusive to the Tatum report, and uh, that provides a little bit more context about maybe what Breonna Taylor's involvement was and in, in some of the or connection was at least to some of the illicit activities that some of the men in her life were engaged in, including this known drug dealer named Glover. Um, I, I see uh, in the the information you've posted. Uh, pictures from her phone, not just of guns, but also of drugs. And then there's a bunch of prison conversations, some of which are transcribed between her and Mr. Glover while he's incarcerated, that that seem to indicate material involvement in his business by Ms. Taylor. And and I I wonder um, how you interpret this evidence as a former law enforcement officer and why you think this information is important to inform our understanding of what happened.
8: I think the information on federalreport.com is incredibly important because people are pushing a narrative that's getting other individuals killed and getting police officers attacked for no reason. Um, cops aren't just out here running down, mowing down black people who are sleeping in their bed. That's just that's not happening.
6: Mm-hmm. What
8: What's occurring is that there are people involved in criminal activity over a substantial amount of time and the police officers are doing the job that they pay them to do by investigating I mean, taking, um, and then taking, prosecuting these people, arresting these people for crimes that they're doing. Brianna Taylor was not sleeping in her bed. Brianna Taylor was not an innocent EMT just trying to live her best life. She was heavily involved in a dope game and most people that live in the hood, most of these rappers that you hear talking about here, they know exactly who she is. They know exactly the scenario, because they were involved in the same behaviors. They use these young women they, as a cover because they have a reasonable job and they run drugs to them. And these young women with no guidance, no father leadership, are stalling for it and, and, and loving and having relationships with these men who are taking advantage of them because it's cool, because it's fancy. All you got to do is look at her social media or, or the, the, the communication between her and her current boyfriend, Kenneth Walker. They're flashing guns, they're flashing drugs. She's excited about it. She's been involved in the investigation with LMPD um, for a very, very long time. So I think that the information that we have is important to put this in context so you know that the police officers aren't randomly doing things. Brianna Taylor is just an innocent person. And then we can all learn from this moving forward.
3: Right. I mean, you could say, you could say for example, the officer that was charged in the case uh, for firing his weapon indiscriminately. We talked about this last time you we were on the show from the Louisville Police Department. Um, you could say, well, that, that, that guy, that was wrong, and he, he should be uh, prosecuted for that. That was, a, that was a, a terrible judgment call on his part. But it, but it's being mis- still, I mean, up to this day, being misreported that police were at the wrong house. When in point of fact, you have this evidence that uh, you have posted at the TatumReport.com that, um, in addition to what we know from the warrants that were obtained by Louisville police, no, they they weren't at the wrong house. They perhaps approached that house the wrong way, or at least one officer did, but um, they were not at the wrong house. There was reasonable suspicion based on an extended period of surveillance. And, um, you know, and all of the connections that included Breonna Taylor, her address, her car and so forth.
8: Yeah, it's very simple. Um, they had enough investigative information um, that they were able to present that to a judge and the judge granted them a no, a, a warrant with a no knock exception on multiple houses that they simultaneously executed. And so it's not some random cop said, I want to do this to this house one day. They have a tremendous amount of investigation. And we had it, 39 pages of an investigation into uh, this incident. They approached the house. I want people to understand this. They had a no-knock exception on, on all the houses that they hit because of Joe Marcus Glover. He's the dangerous armed felon, him and a few other people. That were also apprehended, but they wanted the no-knock exception in case he ended up at any of those houses that they were going to raid. They found the house that he was at. They raided that house with a no-knock. They utilized the no-knock exception with the swatting. They apprehended him and multiple people, guns, drugs, and all of that. Brianna Taylor was a was a criminal, but she was considered nonviolent. So they were going to go and not use the no-knock exception to knock on her door, announce. Perceiving that she would come to the door, they would arrest her at that point. And if she didn't open the door, they would forced entry. So they knocked on the door, they announced, which was corroborated by witnesses and police training. They ran the door. It took them multiple times around the door. So they knew exactly what was happening. Once they got in round Taylor's boyfriend shot the police officer and they returned fire. Other than the one guy, they were activating the training and the warrant execution appropriately.
3: Yeah, That's what I wanted to ask you as somebody who's been in that situation as a former police officer, you know, all of the evidence that you've compiled at TatumReport.com and pouring through it and, and, and processing it all uh, in addition to uh, the, the grand jury testimony that we, we now have uh, from the Kentucky AG's office. I mean, is there anything other than that guy shooting indiscriminately into the building that one police officer doing that, that you find problematic, uh, you find to be uh, questionable even, forget even an ovary, just even questionable?
8: No, I think they did exactly what they were supposed to do. She's considered a nonviolent criminal that's a part of this investigation. They were just going to knock. If she didn't answer, they'll breach the door and call her out. That's exactly what was going to happen. They, the people inside, took it upon themselves to shoot at the police officers who were coming in the house. And so they had to return fire. They had no other choice. You know, I I want to say that... Go go, ahead.
3: No, no, go ahead, please.
8: I want to say that that they should have probably done a no-knock warrant and just executed a no-knock warrant. But those situations are very dangerous. And if she is not a dangerous person, there's no reason to risk it. Mm
10: -hmm. But,
8: uh, you know... they're conflating a lot of things here. They signed it into law that they banned no-knock warrants. This is an example of why no-knock warrants should have been utilized. It was utilized on Jamarcus Glover. Nobody got hurt. They knocked instead of using no-knock on Breonna Taylor, and she got killed. The element so, of surprise. Uh, that people will evaluate that as well. Exactly. Yeah. I was on the SWAT team as well. So I, I know how the element of surprise can really uh, benefit the police department versus knocking and letting people get guns and figure out a strategy to attack you.
3: He is Brandon Tatum, founder of TatumReport.com, where you can get all this Breonna Taylor information we were discussing. He's also a former Tucson, Arizona police officer. Brandon Tatum, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate
5: it. Take
8: care.
0: listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the show. As we close out today, I want to thank John Cash, Chicago Tribune columnist, who filled in for me yesterday. I was in Las Vegas visiting my money. And, uh, you know, it was a long weekend, had, had a lot of fun. Late dinners and actually saw Sebastian Maniscalco give, I believe, his first live performance uh, at the Wynn Hotel since uh, since the lockdowns. Um, And he was hysterical. Chicago native. So Chicago boy done good. That was fun. And I'll tell you, I sounded a little bit like Mike Tyson sounded this morning in this uh, interview he did with uh, Good Morning Britain, Suzanne Reed and Piers Morgan. Mike Tyson uh, on their program to promote his November 28th exhibition bout with Roy Jones, 54-year-old Tyson, 51-year-old Roy Jones. I don't really understand this. Um, they're going to hurt themselves. I mean, Tyson is still a beast, but I, I don't know. And, it, and frankly, it sounds like Tyson has already been hurting himself. He uh, was struggling a bit uh, with Pierce and Suzanne. Good morning, Britain. Good morning, Mike.
11: There have been concerns raised about the fact that you are two men in your 50s uh, fighting each other without protective headgear. What what do you think about those concerns?
7: I think it's very wonderful that we're fighting together. It's a fight that we should have had sooner. But um, unfortunately, we're having it now, and that's going to be awesome. You've been friends with Donald Trump for a very long time. Do you think he can win again? Well, anything's possible, but I think um, people should go to um, the voting booth and everybody should vote. You're able to vote
2: uh, for the first time in quite a long time, aren't you? Does that, is that important to you? Yes,
7: this is true, yes. That, that's, very, that's very important to me. I get to cast my vote and vote for who I want to vote for, and um, that's good. One of
2: the big issues this year, Mike, has been the Black Lives Matter protests around the world particularly, obviously, after the appalling killing of George Floyd. Uh, what, what do you make of the movement, the protests? Uh, do you think it's going to affect real change?
7: Hey, they have to right, the protest. The protest is, um, is really going far, and we don't know how far it can, it can go, but it's really doing good right now. It just shouldn't lose its momentum.
3: Hmm. Um, yeah, you may want to take the day, champ. Yeah, I'm glad. I I think Tyson still lives in Vegas, I think, doesn't he? Or Phoenix. I can't keep track of him. But anyways, if if it's Vegas or Phoenix, Phoenix area, it's a swing state. So I'm I'm glad to hear he's going to vote and Trump's a friend, still thinks he can win. So maybe uh, Iron Mike can put President Trump over the top in whichever swing state he lives in. But uh, a little concerned, although I just the Tyson Roy Jones thing. I mean, Tyson is such a um, strength. Even a 54, pretty good shape, uh, advantage over Roy Jones. But I, I think there are graver concerns than uh, the two 50-year-olds fighting based on that interview today. But uh, again, you know, if he's out Vegas way, it can be some late nights there and just a little tired. Maybe he needs a, a Kai berry smoothie or something to start the day. Thanks for joining us in this edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again as we review more of the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing imbroglio tomorrow.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show.